Hello and welcome to the Safety and Quality Education Program podcast. Developed by Metro North Health Safety and Quality in partnership with the Clinical Skills Development Service, Metro North Health acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land upon we live, work and walk, and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Safety and Quality Education Program has been designed with a focus on patient safety improvement. Each episode will explore ideas and stories in making our care delivery safer for our patients through the implementation of short notice accreditation. Our host is Dr. Mia McLanders, who is the manager of research at Clinical Skills Development Service. Mia is an applied researcher with a background in human factors and cognitive psychology. Joining Mia on this episode from Metro North Health is Natasha White and Tracy Grant. Natasha White is a manager of systems and performance in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership team at Metro North Health. Tracy Grant is the manager of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health services at Metro North. In this episode, our guests explore how clinicians and healthcare workers can demonstrate meeting or exceeding ACHS standards for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Before I'd like to start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land there, which we are recording on today, um, Turuburn Yagara country. I'm not from this country, so it's important for me to acknowledge that. Um, my name is Natasha White. I'm a, a Aboriginal woman from um, my country is Durrambul, um, from my grandma, my grandmother's side. Um, that's in central Queensland, like Rockhampton area. Um, and then on my grandfather's side, I'm um, Eamon, which is out and um, covers the Taroom and Miles kind of area. Um, and then Gungaloo, which is around the Blackwater um, bluff region. So um, I like to call myself a, a, a true a true central Queenslander, <laughs> um, kind of cover all areas um, with my mob. So um, a bit about my um, work history. I started as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker, generalist um, in Yapoon, central Queensland, um, probably about 2009. So I've been in health for maybe 13, 14 years um, and really moved down to Brisbane um, for, I guess, to get some more job opportunities and career opportunities because at that time there wasn't a lot, <clears throat> wasn't a lot, so times have changed. Um, and now I've been with Metro North for, I'd say, just over eight to eight to nine years. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tracy, would you like to yes. introduce yourself? Um, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're having our podcasts and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, I am an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman. I, um, on my mum's side, the Aboriginal side, I have connections to Birigaba and Yidinji, which is way up in the far north, the rainforest people. And I also have bloodline connections to the Torres Strait, Boigu, Badu and Thursday Island. So I feel I've been blessed with both cultures and um, I've been in health, with Queensland Health, for just over 20 years. I started, I too started off as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker up north in a little rural and remote community of about 200 people. I worked there for about three years and made my way down the coast, did a stint in Townsville 
and then came down here to Metro North and again for job opportunities. Um, and as going from a health worker, working in various roles, had an opportunity um, along the way and feel that those positions that um, I had been mm. fortunate enough to act in, be in, gave me um, the skills to be in a position where I am today out at Caboolture. Mm. Yeah. That's and wonderful. enjoy it. Mm. Mm. That's great. Thank you. So can you tell me, I'll start with you, um, Tash, can you tell me how you think the accreditation process directly benefits Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients and their families? Um, I think uh, one of the major things is the the systems approach. Um, when it comes to improving health for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it needs to happen from a system-wide approach. Um, I guess that's, that's how... People go by rules and regulations and accreditation is that. So um, to really improve health for our mob, um, there needs to be rules put in place for people to really um, go by them and implement them. Um, we've found that because uh, we've been around before accreditation, um, before the six standards actually come into effect, it was a part of the um, process of the national um what would they do? The national um, facilitation around the accredit having um, the six standards in the in the accreditation, and um, I guess from 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 having the six standards pure, highly visible, um, you can see the difference and the change um, of having um, being a part of accreditation processes um, to now where um, we're not an afterthought in the accreditation process. So mm. I guess for me it's it's around the system that's put in place that allows us to be um, front and centre of people's thought process. Um, yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. And Tracy, you know, what, what are your thoughts around being front and centre? Does that really make a difference to the outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? Most definitely. And being in health from... Like for me, what I've seen on my journey um, working in health, um, not knowing anything about safety and quality and, like I said, in positions that I've helped learn to see how the organisation works through the safety and quality lens and how important it is um, now that we have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people up in positions who are able to influence the change of the system and the process so that on the other side of the wall where services um, are being delivered to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it should be done in that culturally appropriate manner so that um, our people can feel safe when they come in for healthcare. Mm -hmm. So having that strong system and process behind the scenes allows that uh, frontline service to happen. How do you think we're doing, Tracy? I think we're doing a lot better than we were, say, 20 years ago. Mm. And, um, and now that we have these six cultural standards in place, that helps 
also to support the system and process uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Mm. Yeah. I would say there's definitely still challenges um, and barriers, um, but I guess sometimes that, uh, from what I've seen, it comes down to individuals um, and the way that the the standards are actually interpreted um, is very different. Um, and we've seen that over time, uh, how people interpretate the same the, the same standard mm. um, in different ways. Okay. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that, Tash. The interpretation of the standard matters in terms of delivery of care? Yeah. Um, I think some people will read it and say, well, this is what it says. And then some people will read it and say, well, this is what it means. Mm. Um, but from their own lens um, and their own, I guess, their own perspective. Mm. Um, and part of the process uh, that we really miss when it comes to what is the action that we're going to put in place when it comes to the specific standard is the co-design process um, and the process that needs to happen with Aboriginal and Torres Strait people because they're the ones that the service is required for and the mm. standards are made about. So we kind of miss that, I think, sometimes from a safety and quality perspective. Um, when we're doing action plans around how we're going to meet, um, you know, the keep the standard around Indigenous identification, um, there's no collective um, response. Um, everybody goes off and does their individual work around that. Um, so I think there is a gap and a challenge around how we as a system um, collective work collectively to put things in place. Um, is that a function of siloing or is it is it just a breakdown in communication or it just when you say it's sort of fragmented approach what do you mean by that um, it could be me it could be around the the, the silo um, the siloing mm -hmm. um, but it also could be just a lack of understanding um, and at, at the forefront is someone who doesn't have a lived experience or um, that background of working particularly in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health or an understanding of why that standard is there in the first place, mm. um, they could put their own interpretation on that. So the outcome of that may be very different to what's actually required in that space, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. And in terms of the co-design process that you mentioned, Tracy, I'll throw to you, what have you seen done well in terms of co-design with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Involving our traditional owners and our elders and our community um, and also acknowledging that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workforce in Metro North are a part of that community. Mm. So, you know, we still are able to contribute either as a staff member or as a community member, which is really important. Mm. Um and just adding on to what Tash was saying uh, earlier on, um, processes and the systems needs to be simple. If we make um, systems or processes hard to access anything, um, that creates a barrier for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to access healthcare. If there were like a simple, <clears throat> if there was, if, let me try again. <laughs> if there was one thing, a simple thing that you could see we could do better right now, what would it be? Ask the simple question how we can 
do better to, you know, to be able to um, have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people feel safe, not just in the building itself, but also to feel safe, to be able to know that they are going to um, get the health care that they need, but also to understand it so that they are able to make decisions to be in charge of their health needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and Is there anything immediate that's coming to mind in terms of practical things we could be doing differently? Talking simple, mm-hmm. talking simple language um, and being mindful of body language, um, eyes, eye contact, the the tone of your voice um, and... And just being respectful. Mm. Yeah. How do I be more respectful with my eye contact and tone of voice? Um, by building a rapport with the, the patient, sitting down, getting to know them, getting to know who they are, where they're from and what their story is, um, which can um, make a really big impact on their experience, on their journey in hospital. Very good. Tash? Look, I think the biggest thing in terms of healthcare is ARCs. Um, one of the biggest things that we found we find is that, yes, we understand clinicians are busy and they've got big patient load, but just ARCs. Um, don't assume. Don't ever assume that, um, you know, you're following a cultural protocol because our, our communities are so diverse and very different. Um, and we receive treatment and care differently. So Mm. I would be very different to Tracy when I go to a hospital setting. Um, So I think the fundamental thing is to ask and check in um, continuously. Um, I think the the biggest thing is, is, you know, when we as a community, um, the reason why... I guess that we connect with our with our patients so well is because we understand we understand we understand, um, but we also never assume that we fully understand what they're going through. We help them we help them through what it is that they need from us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would say the biggest thing is just to ask. I feel that the biggest barrier for people who are not of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander descent is the not knowing not knowing what to say, not knowing how to get it right, not knowing if we're getting it wrong. So I think I think that's great advice because sometimes that fear of not knowing prevents people from actually saying, I don't know, can you please teach me what the most respectful way to engage with you would be in this situation? Yeah. Mm. Um, and Tracy's got some really great, um, awesome examples around um, from her previous role at STARS, how um, as a facility the staff come together to make a patient feel safe and comfortable. Um, and I guess that was probably one is they asked her what she needed um, and then Tracy in her position facilitated that with the rest of the clinical staff. That's awesome. Can you tell me about it, Tracy? Yeah, it, it's – I. and every time I think about that story, I think about, you know, it's just about being a human, caring for another human. It's human, um, I see it as human caring. And it was a patient that came in. I had no, like I've never met this lady before. 
um, and she and it was around women's business and um, and she felt safe sharing with me um, you know what her um, journey or her story was and and she said to me she said oh you know what I don't feel comfortable I think I'm gonna leave so my biggest concern was her leaving and then her health um, deteriorating getting worse so in when you're put on the spot like this you've got to think outside the square because her safety and her experience I wanted it to be positive so it was hearing her story and then talking with um, the team, the, the, the team that was going to provide care and around women's business, um, not having a male involved. So spoke to the staff about the importance of her not leaving um, but also making sure that she stays here to have the, the necessary procedure that she needed to have done. Um, we're able to, the nursing staff were able to cater to that need. But the, the one change that we couldn't make was the, the surgeon. He was a male. And she did not understand what her procedure was about. And I said to her, I said, how about I sit in here with you? We'll pull the curtains across. We'll sit on the bed together. I'll hold your hand so that you feel safe so that he can then explain um, what he needs to do. You'll never need to look at him and he will not look at you. She felt safe with that. And so ready to get ready to take her into the theatre and she said, I've got one more request. She said, can Tracy hold my hand while I'm having my procedure done? Oh, my goodness. And, and I looked at the team and they said, here, get these scrubs on. And I thought, <laughs> wow, I wasn't expecting this coming into work and wearing scrubs. So they were able to oh, wow. make that happen because she wanted me to hold her hand and she wanted to see my face when she opened her eyes. And we were able to meet her needs. Mm. And she went to another facility a couple of months later and rang me up and asked if I could come and provide support at another facility. That's extraordinary, Tracy. Yes. <laughs> what a gift to give to somebody and the difference in her health outcomes had you not been there. That's kind of scary, isn't it, to think through? It is, yeah. And and I just felt that I just needed to make her feel safe and mm -hmm. it was just a one human caring for another human. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, I got a little teary. Sorry. <laughs> I, I did. I, know, just, yeah. oh, I, did. I got goosebumps. It was just, yeah, that's really special. I it's guess very, one very of the special. biggest things is um, that's a really great, like that's a beautiful example. Mm. That occurs more than people know. Um, when it comes to our Indigenous hospital liaisons, our Aboriginal health workers, like that is part of, um, you know, we talk about our, you know, when clinical staff go above and beyond. Um, we have health workers and IHLOs that go above and beyond on a regular basis to make sure that our community um, feel safe and understand their treatment. Um, and it's not just within their job. Um, so, you know, Tracy's example was really great in terms of how the hospital facility um, come together and she could work with the clinicians and clinicians' mindset 
changing and how they can come together yeah. to make that change. Um, but we also have other staff. We have staff who do it on their own mm. regularly, mm-hmm. um, who don't get the acknowledgement um, or aren't seen um, because people don't see that side of, you know, what it takes to make sure someone stays to complete treatment. Mm. Yeah. Do you think through the accreditation process that those kinds of above and beyond behaviours would become apparent? Mm. I think the one thing with um, <coughs> with mob when we're at work in the workforce mm. is that um, we, I suppose, don't like the spotlight put on us when we're be providing that care because that's us doing what we do. Mm. Yeah. Being a good human. So mm. that's not something that's necessarily going to be observable yeah. by others. And it's why, yeah. we, it's why if you are, because I would say 100% of the people um, that work here don't just work here just for the pay. Like a lot of them, most of them will say that they work here because they want to improve health for their mob. So, you know, people um, and our communities are small. So um, <clears throat> that Murray Grapevine yeah. is so important with our community because um, if someone gets, you know, that uh, treatment that they don't like in a facility, then that's, that impacts their family yeah. um, and the community that they're from as well. Do we miss that in accreditation? Do we capture it even? Is it possible to capture that? I heard from you before, no. <laughs> <laughs> so So that's... That's okay. So then what does accreditation, how does accreditation benefit you, uh, your community? For me, um, it's about having a voice like we have committees for all of these standards. And it's, for me, it's about ensuring that we have a representative that sits in those committees to be able to especially when it comes to like the six cultural actions against those three standards. Um, And it's having that representative sit at the table to be the voice, not just for um, the system and the process, but also to be the voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when they're accessing healthcare. Um, And it might be just a, a little passing comment that, you know, a patient might provide, you know, some feedback. And it's those little opportunistic comments Um, that can actually make a really big difference on how we can influence um, change and improve access, improve the the experience for um, our mob when they're coming into hospital. Anything to add to that, Tash? I think um, over time we've gotten better at um, as a workforce to use say the accreditation the standards as a tool mm-hmm. for us um, to be able to get um, you know initiatives or um, priorities across um, that we may need to improve health for our mob um, so we find that align making sure that we align actions um, to the accreditation standards opens people's eyes mm-hmm. or provides more exposure um, to why why we need to deliver identify indigenous identification training mm-hmm. um you know why in uh, the processes that go with that your evaluation um before we develop the program um 
uh, how we improve. How do we how we improve, how do we use our um, compliments and complaint system to um, as a you know it's a standard within the credit within the accreditation to improve health services based on feedback that our community are providing us. Look, we know that. Um, you know, a lot of our community are quite reluctant to provide feedback, um, good or bad, um, but there's a reason for that. And um, part of one one reason maybe that they've provided feedback numerous times and nothing's ever happened. So for us, it's about using those mechanisms and tools to improve the system. So don't wait for, you know, three different people to complain about the same thing. Um, to get to 20 for then decide that we've got to make a change. You know, use the three people and look at how we put the quality cycle in place to improve. Mm. Um, I think, from yeah, for me the biggest thing is how do we, is using the tool to improve um, the systems, the governance, the clinical governance, um, the capability of staff, um, the environment for our community. You know, we have... Um, culture capability framework, which we all work off, um, and that's been around for quite some time. Um, but being able to leverage culture capability with the accreditation standards um, has allowed people to, um, I guess, the, the broader workforce to do things differently. You know, you go to our facilities now and you've got Aboriginal and Islander um, artwork. Each one have their own visual identity. Um, you've got acknowledgements on the walls. You've got, and they're all from. Um, people wanting to meet the accreditation standards. What's it like walking into a clinical environment, Tracy, that is welcoming compared to, say, one that isn't so welcoming? Um, I'll use myself as an example. Like when I've um, had to come into, um, like, the hospital, it's, for me, it's seeing, you know, um, posters up on the wall, um, having access to... um, an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander worker. Um, for me, it's about seeing if there is another a face that um, I can connect with for safety because safety for me is very, very important because we come into such a really big sterile um, building and it's like the land of the unknown. Um, so for me, I like to know what's going to happen, why it's going to happen and what are some of the um, side effects or effects that if I don't have it. And and for me, I like um, if I can't understand the language that the clinician or the doctor is um, talking about, then I'll ask them to draw a picture. So for me... It's it's about um, I like to feel safe and and if I need that then I want to make sure that it is a safe place for any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person to come in. Hmm. And while we acknowledge our traditional owners, um, we also need to create a safe space for our Torres Strait Islander people who also access the service. So for me, it's about making sure that the environment is representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, culture so that they feel a sense of connection when they come into this space. And how would we do that? Um, Having yarns once again with the community, um, 
yarning circle, yarning table and doing cultural audits um, and making sure that we have a, you know, a true representation of the the community that we're um, wanting to meet the needs of. Um, and through the yarning, that's where we get to learn about where we can access um, artwork, artefacts, um, what is appropriate, what, what not, is not appropriate, um, and then keep monitoring that, um, but always striving to improve, to make um, our healthcare space welcoming for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Because just because we have something set up there doesn't mean that we can't do better. Mm. Mm. We should always strive to improve. And the only way we can do that is continue the yarns with our community. That's awesome. Tash, do you have anything to add to that? In terms of what it's like for you walking into, because you're a health consumer as well, and what it's like to walk into a an environment that's welcoming versus unwelcoming? I think the unwelcoming is very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the lack of the lack of communication and unknown um, can make you very anxious. Um, and for me, I haven't had too many examples of being a consumer. Um, but I have been um, with with uh, um, one of my aunties when she was in hospital and just watching her go through the lack of communication. Um, she was doing, uh, she had a heart bypass and, you know, nurses just coming in and not speaking to her really, just doing, checking her OBS um, and then doctors coming and going and, um, you know, she was, she's not from here so she, was very anxious to get home as well um, and she basically told them that if they didn't sort out what they needed to do that she was walking um, mm. because she wanted to go home. Um, so she potentially could have been discharged against medical advice. Um, uh, but at that time when I, what I was observing was just communication. We didn't know who the next nurse was so the nurses didn't do a changeover at the bed. Um, the doctor didn't, we weren't too sure when the doctor was coming back and forward. Um, she received her medication. Um, we then figured out that she could stay the night, didn't have to stay in hospital, but she could stay the night and fly back the next day. Um, before she left, they did say that they were concerned about her heart rate. Um, but when we sat, when we, we sat there, um, we just explained to the doctor that we'd just been sitting next to, um, a man who had just received some really bad news. Um, so that played, that played on her. Um, heart recovery as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. Um, because that made her more anxious um, and sad um, because they basically told him that he wasn't going to live um, and that was in the bed next to us um, with the just the curtain across, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I think it's just been to, to force that to, to make it more safe is just be commu- just communicate. Um, you know, as 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 normal human beings, that's what we what we what we what we want. Um, communication and clarity. Um, yeah, I think and and just being kind, like living the values of the organisation, just being kind. Mm-hmm. Um, 
emergency ser- emergencies <laughs> going to emergency can be even more daunting um and you know when you're told to get get your name and then go and sit down and then someone will come out eventually like people can become quite anxious um around what's going to happen next so yeah i think it's how do we um I think the biggest thing is if we get if we get it right for Aboriginal and Torres Strait people, we get it right for everybody mm. um, because the way we look after our community and treat our community is based off respect, relationships um, and culture. Yeah. And it's mm. about um, how would you want your family to be treated? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing because we're... You know, Tracy and I both said we're not from here. Um, you know, a lot of people from my community go to Prince Charles mm-hmm. or get flown and mostly flown um, from from Prince Charles as well as Royal Brisbane. So um, I know that that's very scary even they can, and they're very quite, you know, well known for their health, um, but that's still very scary experiences. And to know that you've got staff particularly our HLOs and health workers up there that will treat them um, with dig- with dignity and like they are family, um, you know, that's comforting. Yeah. yeah. What do you see as necessary with regard to changing governance to ensure that we do close the gap for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? Mm. For me it's about... Um, it's about yarning. It's 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 yarning and understanding um, what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture means to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, so that we have policies and procedures. And in the policies and procedures, there's always a section that says Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander considerations. And for me understanding what our culture means to us um, makes sense for that paragraph that's in our policies and procedures. So if you understand our culture, um, then we should not even have that in there in the policies and procedures to be considerate because we should be just treated like everybody else in the health system. Mm-hmm. With respect, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, for us to actually achieve the health outcomes um, as a system, we need to be innovative, um, be flexible, and work together um, at all levels. Um, because we can't trace in I position in positions like ours, we can't do it alone. Um, and historically, we have, um, and that really is a Band-Aid solution. Um, we need to actually be developing the foundations. Um, you know, we've only got 10 years. That's right. 10 years for the 2033 um, when we're supposed to close the gap by. So it, it, it needs, <clears throat> I guess, yeah, that massive collaboration yeah. Um, and people to understand that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health is everybody's business um, and it's not just the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health roles um, for us to improve 
health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait people. It's every individual within their position to mm. do so. Mm. Yep. Um, in terms of governance, I think governance helps in keeping us on the tr- on track and um, in narrow. So uh, uh, narrow, that's not right. <laughs> keep us on track um, with achieving those, and I guess keep um, having the having them the system keep keeping us accountable um, to really making a a, a, a true impact um, and not just you know we our history is that people report to really um, or do things to tick a box mm. we want to get away from that we want to make an impact um, and real change because mm. yeah. to build a cultural capable <clears throat> organization we need to understand the history like what happened mm. before and Today we need to put a plan together on how we're going to move forward for a better tomorrow and we can only do that together. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. When you were talking before about that, it was a word you used, Tracy, about coming into the, the building and being off country or but it was like you're in a sterile environment and mm. it's that disconnect from from country literally as well it's sort of that extra element to it that makes like it it makes sense to me because from my background in psychology Mm -hmm. understanding um as a uh, trauma being you know one of the ways that we manage um trauma is to sort of connect and ground and and as i understand it that connection to country and the actual physical nature natural environment is part of that grounding and soothing um, so then to even just be in a physically clinical environment is really disconnecting and disorientating and destabilising. Mm. Very much. And then you're, you know, you're in a ward with people you never met before. Mm. Um, you know, your comfort is your home and safety. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had, we've had patients who have moved themselves to different wards on levels just because there were other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people there and that's where they felt safe. So um, they moved themselves. Yeah, but mm. it's just it makes so much sense because of that connection and, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think beautiful. we, um, and one of the things I really like what Trace talks about is we just need to make it simple. Health is not, health is not complex. Um, we as a people are not complex. Um simple things work for us mm-hmm. and it could be the the simplest thing of is <clears throat> how we how we change our letterheads when we send out when we send out um, appointment letters to our community um change in what way um color um putting artwork yeah, on putting them. yeah artwork like um cultural so artwork yeah. yeah so they're not seen as being come from government mm. um <clears throat> we you know um Offering support to the family as well as not just the clinician, the consumer. Um, you know, we have services here at Royal Brisbane and Prince Charles where they collect, the IHLOs will collect um, patients from the airport, bring them to the appointment to the hospital. Um, PTSS is a big issue. So, you know, we navigate, they help navigate getting them into accommodation that we can afford. Um, so we, we often forget the social determinants and the cultural determinants and how that impacts healthcare. Um, we only always worry about 
what we're treating. Um, and for us, specifically being Aboriginal mm. and Torres Strait Islander health workers, the fundamental um, learnings from that is, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, we, it's around holistic care. So how we treat that whole person as well as, you know, their supporting they're supporting that the big picture behind them yeah. Um, yeah yeah and even like you know with talking about the welcoming environment um we have a lot of artwork across metro north each facility has their own artwork which tells a story and we have a lot of um beautiful shirts that um have the artwork like our identification shirts our um our own facility shirts and it's important when staff are wearing those shirts, especially the um, the non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff, to actually understand and know what that story tells mm. because when our mobs see a staff member with that shirt on, they're actually displaying or showing that, you know what, you can come to me and feel safe. Mm. Um, but if they get questioned or asked about that artwork and they don't know, then that there can be like red flags, I suppose. Um, Yeah, so it's just little simple things like that. You don't need to know the real intimate details of the artwork, but um, to have knowledge, and that's having knowledge of culture. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest thing is is, um, cultural safety. We talk about cultural safety. Cultural safety is not about us educating. It's about the individual going out and educating themselves to be able to become more culturally safe and culturally aware. Um, there's a yeah, there's a lot of conversations that occur um, around, you know, providing education programs and toolkits for people. Um, but ultimately, the foundation of cultural safety is about people taking that initiative to go and educate themselves mm-hmm. yeah. and putting it into practice. Yep. Yeah. yeah. 